Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Science and religion deal with uncertainty in different ways. In religion, the uncertainties of life sometimes lead, leads to spiritual awareness. It could also lead to something known as the God of the gaps, where gaps in our knowledge is sometimes filled in with this notion of God. But then certain people uh, be, may become fixed in their understanding of God and cannot see things differently or from a different perspective, and we, we call that fundamentalism at times. So uncertainty plays a role in religion, and, but sometimes certainty turns the tables and it, it creates divisions in the way people approach the spiritual. In science, it's a little different. Science is supposed to be the objective search for truth, where science seeks to, seeks to fill in the gaps of our knowledge through experiment and reasoning. At times, this quest for perfect knowledge, at least to me, I think gets a little overconfident as scientists throughout the ages have at one time or another proclaimed that they already know everything there is to know or that they will soon reach a theory of everything and explain the entire creation of the universe all the way to the emergence of consciousness from the brain. But science itself practiced, I think, in a neutral, objective fashion also has to understand the uncertainties. And I think when you go in that direction, uh, science and religion may wind up in the same spot where the, the uncertainties or the unknowability of certain things about the physical world may lead some people to an awareness of spirituality itself. Now, my guest today is Dr. John Bancroft. He is the former director of the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at Indiana University. He was, he's also the former, former clinical professor of psychiatry at the Indiana University School of Medicine. He has a BA and MD from Cambridge University, and he has written a very fascinating book entitled Tolerance of Uncertainty, where he probes in a very searching, personal fashion this, this tolerance that we have for uncertainty and, and how much this tolerance plays into our lives and our understanding of different fields. Uh, John, welcome to the show. It's great having you. Thank you. Uh, as, I, as I was saying, this notion of tolerance of uncertainty is a big one, uh, but let's, let's start off about what led you to write a book at, at your stage about uncertainty, because you are retired, and you've, you've been around, and you've obviously, uh, you're, you're well-written, you're well uh, well-published, and um, at this point, what led you to write a book about uncertainty? Well, uh, 
what happened in my research career uh, is that for most of it I was doing sort of uh, scientific studies to test hypotheses and uh, and for the most part each study would end up with me feeling more confused and complicated than I had been before and it was only quite late in my career after I got to the King's Institute that I made a significant change uh, in how I approached scientific research in that uh, I used what I call models of reality. Uh, and uh, together with my colleague Eric Janssen at the Institute, we, de we developed a particular model we call the dual control model, uh, which um, uh, focuses on the individual variability in, in human sexuality. Uh, and um, we accepted that this was a model. Uh, we developed measures of individual propensities for sexual excitation and sexual inhibition. Um, and then we set about uh, uh, exploring uh, interesting questions. And this, this was a different way to do, to do science, uh, to use a model of reality. <clears throat> um, and um, in the first part of my retirement, uh, I was writing the third edition of my book, Human Sexuality and Its Problems, where I was going over all these issues. And uh, I began to wonder whether this way of coping with uncertainty in science may be of relevance to coping with the uncertainties in the rest of my life. So um, <clears throat> I decided then, uh, about uh, four or five years ago, to uh, look more closely at how other humans had coped with uncertainty. And that started me on a long journey. Uh, yeah, that yeah that that is um, you know one thing that really uh, struck me about your about your book, as I mentioned, is that it really is a a classic book in the sense that it re it reveals your thoughts to the to the reader. It leads the reader along your journey, but you could also see that you were learning as you were going yeah. along, and that that's one thing that I think that people forget about the process of writing a book it's that it's not only for the reader it's also in many ways for the writer and Absolutely. and and it's the yeah. it's having the time that uh you know to devote to to undergoing that kind of of self-exploration that makes reading a book valuable because you did something that probably a lot of people would would like to do which is evaluate this whole um, issue of uncertainty. Now, you mentioned something here about models, which, which I know is, is uh, key to your book, and, but I also think that this concept of models is, is becoming more and more front and center for science because we, we tend to think that the scientific model is is the true reality is and we 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 sometimes confuse in my opinion the model for the reality is is this is is this something that that you is this something that that you hit on or or how would you put that that uh, particular problem well i i think i think what you say is is i think a correct interpretation of what is happening with a lot of scientists but i think you know the fact is that the model is the model not the actual thing right. and um it's a way of uh, having a useful approach to the actual thing and uh, and that's what i've done in relation to uh, uncertainty yeah yes and it, it seems to me that 
there's this is this is why there's a tension here because we need to have some model you need to I, you know, in reading your book, I was thinking of that saying uh, by W.C. Fields, I think, is, is it's something like everybody needs to believe in something. And it's, it's like yeah. everybody needs a model. You have to structure right. your, your life according to some, quote, unquote, paradigm or some kind of framework from the simple yeah. to the sublime. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, uh, but what, what is this? What is this model uh, approach? How how has that affected us? How how is that is is that good or bad for science? And and I mean it's really a two part question. Is it good or bad? And do you think we need a new model? I think I personally think it's good. I think it's uh, really acknowledging the limits of what we can comprehend, and therefore limiting ourselves to what we can comprehend and what hopefully will be useful. Uh, even if we don't understand everything. So I think that sort of humility is uh, very important for the human condition, and I'm afraid it's been rather lacking in the scientific community to a large extent. Uh, But I think we need to move to that state where we realize and accept that there is a limit to what we can understand and get on and and do what we can within those limits. Yeah, could you... um why don't you give us an example of, of where of where you think scientists might be coming a little bit too overconfident or showing not the requisite amount of humility? I have my own ideas, but I'm, I'm wondering what what strikes you as being an example of this um, well, lack of... Well, what I wrote about in the book as a particular example of this was, was uh, the science of the mind and consciousness. And uh, <clears throat> I looked uh, at the literature of the... There's a lot of recent literature that I haven't looked at, but I don't think it's fundamentally changed. There's a majority of neuroscientists who believe that although we don't understand what consciousness is, how it works, we will eventually understand that. And uh, I uh, subscribe to the view of uh, the minority of neuroscientists that uh, actually this is something that is beyond our comprehension and we should just accept that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I, th- I think consciousness, you know, I've been doing more reading on this topic myself um, recently because the more you think about it, the more mysterious it is. And, 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 and one, one, one facet that, you know, has hit me recently about this topic of consciousness is that I think, uh, according to the Darwinian evolution story, uh, evolution goes towards creating a brain and then this brain uh, somehow generates this consciousness which turns back and becomes aware of the world um, that created itself or that created the brain. I mean it's it's a weird kind of story and what strikes me about it if you if you look at it in one particular way it sounds so uh, purpose-driven it, it's you know, and and I think that for me, one of the um, sort of signs that the current model, and I'm going to call it the model of materialism, uh, is is failing, is because at the end of the day, there's all these mysteries here, consciousness being a big one, uh, you know, you know the the origin of of natural law being another one, that that leads to this this mystery where 
for for decades, if not centuries, the 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 scientific mainstream has sort of swept them under the rug, as being you know either a given in their formulas or something you don't have to deal with. But but um, questions like this, i.e., the origin of consciousness, um, I would completely agree. I don't I don't see how th- that will ever be explained. I think it is one of those those um, uncertainties but but where where does the tolerance i mean th- this question about uh, tolerance where does that fit in how do you think it's do you think a certain amount of tolerance is necessary or how, where, where do you ultimately come down on that well i, I think that looking at uncertainty in, in, a, in a more general sense um, uh, and incidentally i make the distinction in the book between unknowability which i which i would say was the case with with consciousness uh, and uncertainty which uh, can apply to you know everyday issues that we have to to uh, deal with right uh, but um uh, the, the dealing with uncertainty people obviously vary quite a lot and there are some people who absolutely need to be certain uh, about important things in their life and, uh, and uh, this is a, a personality characteristic which uh, and, and other people vary and what I'm basically saying in my book is that uh, yes of course people are going to vary but it is important I believe for for our human condition that we accept certainly accept unknowability uh, there's a limit to what we can understand and uh, in the process, uh, become more tolerant of being uncertain about things so that we uh, are not disturbed by the uncertainty. We get on and manage it in whatever way is appropriate. Yeah, I think there's also a relationship here between this tolerance of uncertainty and open-mindedness. It strikes me that there is a relationship. And I I think that the the religious uh, fundamentalist movement is an example of where too much certainty closes your mind Uh, but the same thing the same thing occurs in science and and I just um, I just read uh, the column by Michael Shermer a my last guest uh, told me about a column by Michael Shermer in Scientific American and Michael Shermer uh, is the is the author of the believing brain and he's the publisher of skeptic magazine and he's very, very materialistic, very, a very w- good writer, uh, very intelligent. But he wrote, he wrote a column in Scientific American, the last issue, the issue or the second last issue, that to skip to it, he basically had this experience during his wedding night, where an old radio that uh, was passed down from uh, his wife's grandfather. They needed some music. They couldn't find any any music, and they opened. And all of a sudden, they heard some in the bedroom. And her grandfather's old radio had somehow clicked itself on and was playing romantic <laughs> music. And it's sort of it was one of these crazy. It's sort of like I I will put that in my next account of synchronicities, by the way, because I think it's an amazing story. But but to me, it's like that shows that you don't know everything. You know, there are mysteries out there that are remarkable. Uh, and, and and I think that it's sort of like we should be, to me, um, sort of enjoying the mysteries, <laughs> not, not pretending as if there aren't any. You know, no, I agree with you. And I think this is uh, what I've come to realize is uh, 
is what is evident in my sense of spirituality, and I feel this spiritual feeling in particular in my reactions with nature. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see various aspects of nature, and, and I feel this wonderful uh, sense of spirituality, but um, uh, it's a lot of it is, is because, you know, I don't really understand it. <laughs> well, it, well, that that's encouraging. I mean, it's. I think that it is encouraging for um, for listeners and for for people that don't um, that don't have a scientific background to know that people like you that have that have been in this field your entire life that have been in the scientific field your entire life that there is this this sense of awe, the sense of humility. At the at the uncertainties, the unknowability uh, of life. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. John Bancroft, uh, retired professor at the Indiana University, who's written this fascinating book called Tolerance of Uncertainty. Uh, John, I like I like to talk about one of the best examples I think of this uncertainty that a lot of people deal with, and this is this is. Uh, uh, the topic of atheism, agnosticism, and believers, because th- this is something everybody at some point in their life encounters. You know this. You know what are they? And and why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about what your research, what you what you uncovered in evaluating uh, how these different mindsets fit in to tolerance of uncertainty, atheism, and agnosticism, and and believers. How does well, I, I think um, in going through the various ways of, of, of looking at uh, religious belief, um, the one that I found most uh, appealing and uh, uh, and I you know was persuaded by it was by uh, I think his name is Daniel Bateson, um, who uh, over the years has been putting forward this. Uh, um, sort of sense of uncertainty in our religious belief as being an important part of that belief, um, that we should be searching, that we should be searching for what is best for us and not assuming that we know. Yeah. And uh, so that that is where I'm at, and that is where, where writing, working on this book helped me to arrive at um, as far as that is concerned. I don't regard myself as an atheist. I never have done. I'm a little bit um, uncertain about the term agnostic, but that's probably the one I'm closest to. Uh, and I have, I can have no difficulty understanding how other people need to deal with uncertainty in their lives by developing a relatively certain belief in a God. Uh, and I respect that. It's just that that's not the way I do it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've uh, interviewed on this show a couple atheists and of course believers and agnostics and and the one thing you know atheism is such a rich term because a lot of atheists are actually people that don't believe in traditional religion for example or or they don't believe that Jesus Christ arose from the dead or something like that as opposed to not believing in God or spirituality or or universal mind or something else or something more neutral but but the, but the one thing about atheism that's always struck me is that how can you be so sure that God doesn't exist? I mean, it's right, it's it's yeah. the opposite of 
it's just like I mean you could ask somebody well what makes you so sure God does exist and it's it's a similar question but the difference I think is that we we have a sense inside of us of some power at least a lot of people do of some power and so at least you could point to a subjective a, a subjective feeling as undergirding your belief uh, with regard to ag- agnosticism I guess my sense there is that's a, also a very rich term uh, but it's sort of like well how a state of not really knowing which is sort of what agnosticism is or not having made up your mind or indifference doesn't mean that you that you can't continue trying to fill in your knowledge you know so so I would agree with you I think agnosticism is you know is is not is is sort of the scientific approach uh, but but it's the thing is is that I don't think atheism is a particularly valid standpoint because it sort of says that you've decided something doesn't exist and and maybe and maybe you've made up your mind too fast um so well it's about as certain as fundamental religion is fundamentalist religion i mean it's it's, it's the two ends of the scale certainty at each end yeah and uh i, I don't um i don't identify with, with either uh, yeah. I'm somewhere in the middle yeah uh, and i think this process of accepting that we have limitations to what we can understand um, produces in us an appropriate humility, which I think is probably important for the way we uh, adapt to our lives. I think uh, that that is probably the most important message I would want to get across from my book, that uh, people should be able to feel comfortable with uncertainty. and at the same time work at uh, dealing with it uh, in an appropriate fashion. Well, I, th- I think and I think that's a great message. And one of the things that came across to me as I was reading your book as well uh, is whether, whether you think there is something to getting older that increases your tolerance for this. Because, you know, I, I have in my mind sort of the brash young uh, graduate student who's, who set out to you know who who sets out to conquer the world and understand everything and and it's sort of like this this overconfidence in science or in inquiry and then over time you start sobering up a little bit uh, do you think that there's something uh, there's a relationship between the tolerance of uncertainty and just getting older well I it makes sense. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it, it, um, it it's not unusual for people early in their lives to feel fairly certain about things, yeah. but then with experience, uh, they come to realise that actually uh, it wasn't the way they thought it was, yeah. and that uh, is something that happens over time. So yes, it's more likely to happen as you get older. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. I think that it's it's helpful. Because it's just like Michael Shermer and the radio. I mean, you sort of, as you go through life, things things start, you know, experiences start occurring, and and you and I think you do think it's more a more of a tolerance because I I I think we need to have a certain amount of certainty in our lives in order to live. You want to make sure your house is still there. You want to make sure there's food on the table. 
that there's a check in the mail to pay your bills. There's there's a certain amount of our lives that are, that's structured in such a way that that we we need to have this kind of comfort. But over time, the big issues I think need to be pushed back a little bit, and and I, I think by having that tolerance, it also leads to more room for agreement because people aren't as fixed in their ways and you know that that's one of the things about about your survey of religion um, that I thought was very helpful uh, and and for those uh, who want to read a very uh, original and and readable account of the way different religions approach um, uncertainty and approach approach God and spirituality um, Dr. Bancroft's uh, review of religion in his book *Tolerance of Certainty* is, is really well done. What What did you learn about the different religions when you were doing your research? Because I, I take it that you um, that a lot of this was new for you as well. What What points came across sure. to you? Well, I did. I mean, I I learned a lot because I read stuff that I hadn't read before. Um, I obviously knew more about um, Christianity than the other. Major religions. Um, I was interested and, and uh, impressed by how how many sort of similarities there were between Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, I didn't. Know, I knew very little about um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, which were the other three religions I looked at. Right. Uh, so uh, I had obviously had a lot to learn there, and. Um, so yes, I, I found it a very rewarding uh, journey, actually. What what was what what do you think um, we misunderstand? In in, in uh, I mean I mean I know you're in the UK right now, but in the Western world, what do you what do you think um, the problem is with with Islam? I mean, or or put differently, did did you identify? something in your study here that told you, well, if we do X, Y, and Z, maybe we could have more agreement between the religions? I mean, was, is there something that struck you that we need to do in order to, um, you know, how can I put this, get the, get the, uh, the conflicting religious folks to talk to each other? <clears throat> to be honest with you, Philip, I, uh, I I don't know how to deal with uh, yeah. uh, Islam in its present uh, form. Yeah. Um, my reading about um, the origins of Islam and Muhammad, uh, uh, I felt very positive about that. And uh, uh, but um, it, it seems to have gone seriously wrong and has done for some time. Uh, on the other hand, there have been long periods of time when Christianity has been seriously wrong yeah. and uh, I'm sure Judaism too um, so uh, these are things that happen over time and just hopefully they, they will sort themselves out yeah well I, I think haven't got any I haven't got any obvious yeah. solutions yeah them. well it was it was it was an unfair question because I'm always because obviously it's one of the the front and center of issues in our time is is yeah. this is this ongoing battle between between religions, it really underlies so much conflict uh, in right. in the world, and it really, you know, in some ways, it really is sort of an over over emphasis on one 
factions uh, belief system uh, you know the, the the fact that in Islam there are the Shiites and the and this and the Sunnis and they each um, believe that one follower Muhammad um, is the legitimate follower and they and they fight wars kill each other because they believe in different followers and when you think about it that's not a very uh, valid reason to be killing each other just because you have different beliefs on who was the legitimate follower but that's that's the way things are sometimes now now one of the concepts that you talk a lot about in your book that I think is very fascinating is this concept of transcendence and right. yeah so what what did you what did you learn about transcendence what does it mean to you right now well i think uh, i have struggled somewhat to get to terms with it but uh, what is most relevant to me about the the issue is uh, uh, being aware of something beyond oneself right. and uh, one of the sort of um, i think probably uniquely human um, characteristics you know probably not there in other species is um, awareness uh, of oneself and um, transcendence um, implies that uh, that you become aware of something beyond that and it's a question of how you deal with that and some people see that um, uh, as an other self and uh, that leads to them seeing it as related to God and so on um, other people like me uh, 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 just accept it more as a sort of variation of what we normally experience which is interesting and potentially important but doesn't require belief in a god to explain it yeah does that, does yeah. That yeah i think i think that transcendence to me is is one of the one of the concepts that we need to focus on and i'm i'm reminded of of you know ralph waldo emerson and the transcendentalists and this notion of going beyond i mean my own show is called conversations beyond science and religion because i think that the only way to really combine the two is to go beyond them yeah. and yeah. and you can't because if you if you set each of them in stone with religion being whatever words are in the Bible for example or the Quran and then science being the latest textbook that's being used at the major universities you know there is never going to be a way to get those together and so you really need to go beyond it and it's it's something that uh, you know transcendence it's something that you feel it, and it it's it's it, it to me it is it it's part of having a very open mind. Right. You know, I mean, you because that's yeah. the only way that's the only way we could we could rise above this this current um, sort of division we have. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. J John Bancroft, the author of the book Tolerance of Uncertainty, and we're talking about how uh, uncertainty and the various ways uh, that we that we tolerate uncertainty uh, is is something that uh, affects our relations with other people and our relationship to the world. Now, you you talk in your book uh, a lot about the subjugation of women, and 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 I. I know that you're an expert. This is the field uh, that that you spend a lot of time uh, in your career. But how does how does that play into tolerance of uncertainty? The whole issue about 
the subjugation of women? Well, I agree with you. It's a, it's a theme that runs through the book, and um, which I regard as very, very important. And um, I said in the book that uh, I come dangerously close to being certain about it, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not certain about the best way of dealing with it. Um, I, I see it as um, the most important uh, form of immorality that has um, been there for. For a large part of human history, the the, uh, the male regards the female as being uh, sort of his possession and uh, and subjugated. And um, I said in the book that I, I thought this sort of um, subjugation of women uh, background um, made it more likely that um, humans would engage in slavery. Um, initially, slaves were mainly female, and after a while, when they uh, took them across the Atlantic to North America, they were mainly male. But it wasn't until the mid-19th century that it became acknowledged and accepted that slavery was immoral. In, in, uh, from my perspective, the subjugation of women is immoral. And um, uh, uh, I finished the book you know, in the last chapter. I, I put forward an example. I, I talk about modelism, my use of models, and I put forward a model of of, of how society should deal with men and women as an, as an example of that. And it's my way of finishing off with uh, uh, a um, clear statement about my uh, un, uh, the unacceptability of subjugation of women. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah the one thing that comes across here and this is probably one of the most important things I think that we could talk about on this on this topic is when you talk about models um, when when models are necessarily as we said in the beginning models that they're a way of understanding things but sometimes these models become so ingrained in the way we look at the world and the way we interact with people that we view them as being part of our genetic code or something, and, uh, and I think that the 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 subjugation of women is 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 an example of that. Yeah. I think, is that is that what you're? I mean that, and breaking free, breaking free of these models takes a long time. This is one of my issues, which is we know, for example, that some of these things are just wrong. And subjugation of women is one of them, but but another one, of course, to me. Is the is the overemphasis on materialism, but but these these are like inbred in in us, and just changing it out um, is going to take a while. I mean, do you see things getting better for uh, using the subjugation of women as an example? Do you, do you see things getting better that the model is changing or, or what? Well, yes. I mean, certainly things have improved quite a lot, and yeah. this has been uh, to a large extent due to the uh, the impact of. Uh, feminism in, in the modern world, which has really confronted us with uh, yeah. uh, with this, and um, but I think there's still quite a way to go, and and uh, more in some parts of the world, which change very little um, than others. I mean, in the Western world, in the United States, and the United Kingdom, and so on, things are better than they used to be, but um, they're still not uh, right, and um, so we've got to be working at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the I think that. That is, you know, I, I'm optimistic that with our, our modern 
uh, technology, our, our incredibly quick ways of communication, the internet, Skype, uh, emails, the, the publication of, blo of um, personal blogs and YouTube, that, that the, our, our race to this open-mindedness or this increased tolerance will, will be accelerated. That yeah. we won't be going through centuries. It won't take us centuries. It may take us decades. I mean, I and I and this is probably this is more hope than it is, um, you know, certainty for for, for that matter. Because I am I'm hoping. Because you know, one thing as you get older, you hope these things happen faster yeah. as well. Uh, because you like to be around for the for the yeah. for the for the benefit of it all. You know, I mean, I I hope that things do do. Um, do improve faster now why don't you just you know you did end your book with with uh, some of your ideas about about um about the male female um relationship and that why, why don't you just summarize it for the uh, uh, for the listener here and what on um, what your ideas are on that front um the idea actually i, I first put forward uh, in a talk i gave when i was at indiana university quite a few years ago um, I, I've never come across any reaction to it, positive <laughs> or negative. Nobody's paid any attention to it until you. Um, but but uh, the, the idea, I call it the two-team approach uh, in this book, is that uh, uh, eventually, if it worked, every section of society would have its male component and its female component. Uh, men would not compete with women. They would compete with men and so on. Uh, and... Um, they would, you know, they would be paid the same for the, for the same level of society in men and women. So it would be this acknowledgement that there were two types of people that had a lot of things in common, but that were fundamentally different and equally important. And um, that is how I would like, to, where I would like to see society going to acknowledge that. So I've put this forward in practical terms how you might go about doing it. Obviously. Uh, it's not going to happen during my lifetime, right. but uh, hopefully people will start thinking about it, um, and uh, there may be some positive consequences of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true that, I mean, using using basketball as an example, I mean, it is it is true that um, many, many um, s jobs, uh, 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 sports, we sort of judge women by comparing them to men, and it's and I think you're right. I mean, it, it's not it's not a correct comparison. There is in his book, um, I think it's called The Blank Slate, by Steven Pinker. He he gets into this topic uh, by try, by arguing that that there are differences between. I mean, it's not just the sexes he's arguing, but he's arguing that there are these differences and we need to appreciate the differences it's obviously well, a delicate topic yeah. because because it, it's interwoven with equality and right. and what is and what does that mean and are you saying that uh you know women are in some way inferior but i know you're not saying that but the it's it's obviously a delicate topic but to me it shows that our civilization has more evolving to do Absolutely. Yeah. I think the point I, I tried to make was that um, uh, in, a, in a system where women were basically subjugated, um, uh, you had the sort of uh, template for uh, 
subjugation of other types of people. It, it, it's the sort of basis for uh, uh, a lot of immorality, yeah. um, racism, uh, for example. Yes. And um, so if we, if we can get over that and, and have men and women equally important, then we would have made an important step forward. Yeah, well, uh, yes. I personally have no doubt that uh, that is the case. Yeah. What What do you think about, I mean, one of the sort of buzzwords in our current uh, culture is that is someone says, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious. And it, I'm sort of switching gears. Like me. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm sort of switching gears, but, but I, I'm starting to see more and more citations to um, William James' book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Right. And, right. and for those who want to read, I think, one of the great books ever written, to me that is one of the great books, The, yeah. the, the Variety of, of, religious, of Religious Experience. And do you think that this movement away from organized religion that I think we're seeing, do you think that that has something to do with the tolerance of uncertainty? That's a good question. Um, I, I think uh, probably in some way it does, does mean that people uh, don't have the same need to be certain about uh, God and so on. Uh, they can get on with their lives without that sort of certainty. And uh, where it's going to take us is, is another matter, I'm not sure. Right. Uh, but there have been major changes in that respect with a lot of secularization, um, rather different in the United States than in Europe. But uh, it's, it's an important issue which we can only speculate about. I don't think that there's um, any doubt that this this downward trend of of um, organized religion is going to continue. I, there was an article recently, and I forget, I think it was in a Wall Street Journal, where there was an article about how the number of new churches being built is going down, you know, which is, you know, for the first time. And I know that in the UK, um, it, it's, it's not as, quote-unquote, religious as the U.S. is. Uh, and so, and, and certain parts of Europe are, are also accelerating that, that decline faster, uh, and I I do think that it has something to do with people having more confidence in their own connection to the spiritual than needing to have somebody else instruct them on how they should approach God or the spiritual. And so I do think that that is is part of this. And of course, this, of course, I'm guessing here. Uh, John, I mean, this is all speculation, but it it, it means something. It, it it means something. Well, I, I think if you look at the history of uh, history of Christianity, for example, uh, the um, the changes that came about with the Reformation, uh, where you had the um, Protestant Church emerging, uh, there was a striking difference there, and this is several centuries ago. Um, uh, between uh, being part of a, of a religion such as the Catholic Church with certain beliefs which you had to follow and being able to decide on your own uh, spiritual beliefs. Uh, so that, that, that happened quite a long time ago and I think uh, has, has not gone away, but um, uh, that doesn't, that's not the same thing as the secularism that we've been seeing in the the people moving away from religious belief, um, and I don't know where that is going or how I 
Yeah, well, it's something, you know, there's certain there's certain things that are just going to happen because that's the way uh, our our spirit or our beings will will evolve. I mean, I'm I'm a believer that there's more to evolution than just the material form that there is that there is a a uh, a evolution of consciousness or spirit or whatever we're going to call it that sounds more scientific. Um, but I so I so I do think there is a growth. The the um, the one thing that uh, that that also uh, st- struck me in your book that you know when you were talking about what amazes you about about nature is that you you pointed to to pregnancy, which I thought was am- which 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 really um, struck me as well because um, it's it is a, an amazing thing. But what is it about pregnancy to you that sort of reveals uh, mystery or wonder. I, I, I've become much more aware of this late in my life. Um, but now, if I see a pregnant woman or a woman with a, with a recently born baby, I'm just confronted with how miraculous this is. Yeah. And when I stop and think about it, this is how we all arrived here. And we came from our mother's abdomens and... <laughs> I just think that is amazing, and uh, of course it underlines the fundamental importance of women, but uh, in addition to that, it, it's, it's uh, something which is it, it's not unique to nature, it's, it's going on you know, throughout nature in one way or another, but it's still miraculous as far as I'm concerned, and uh, I've become increasingly um, affected by that, actually, Well, you know, in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. John Bancroft, the author of the fascinating new book, Tolerance of Uncertainty. And we're talking about the amazing thing called called pregnancy. And, and you know, I'm going to be controversial here, um, and I'm allowed to because it's my <laughs> show. But to me, it's one of the when – you, when you really think about it, it's one of the, the – the, um, facets of life that to me put this the strict Darwinian evolution in the question for me because it is if you take uh, if you describe evolution in a very general sense you can almost explain everything you just say well it's it's such and such you know people reproduce because because it was determined that in order to have a better chance of surviving you needed to produce more offspring and so that so that becomes the explanation, and which which to me never really explains anything. It, when you actually look at the, f- the, the at the phenomena, it is an amazing thing that uh, that the that the body changes in such a way to to produce new living things. It is a miracle, and mm. and and so it's that's how I started off. I try to start off the show by by saying that if if you if the scientific community starts realizing more completely that they are really just building models and that the model will never be able to duplicate the reality and that underlying that model is some is just a deep mystery filled filled with not only uncertainty but unknowability that I think that does lead to spirituality. I mean, I think that that's what Einstein was about, and I think that that's what the great scientists are were really are really about. You know, we're losing touch of that a little bit 
with some of the pronouncements from 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 the current popular science writers um, who who give the impression that everything is going to be figured out shortly. I mean, the example I have here is Victor Steinger, uh, who wrote a wrote an article in this magazine I have from the Skeptical Inquiry, basically basically saying that science can now explain everything naturally, that there's no need to, um, you know, ascribe any of the mysteries to some higher power or anything. And, you know, this is, this is all over the place. But anyways, what do you, what do you think of that from a globe, from a, you know, a broader global perspective? I mean, do you think that, that the scientific enterprise is going to at some point acknowledge that, they can't explain everything, or, or where do you, where do you from your experience where do you see this heading? Well, uh, I hope so. Uh, I, I and I made this explicit in my book that uh, that I see this as being a very important part of the next stage of uh, the sort of development of the human condition that uh, we uh, accept that we have a limit to what we can understand um, and. Um, uh, I don't know where that's going to go, to be honest, uh, but um, uh, I can just hope that uh, that view will become more accepted, and uh, I think the human, the human condition will improve as a result. Well, and, and this this is related, uh, my next question is, is, is related to what you just said, but, you know, you, you spent years researching and writing this book, and and I've and I've learned a lot from reading it. I've also picked up some other books I want to I want to get after reading this. But but what what did the book teach you? And I, I know you've touched upon this, but what did it teach you that you think others, such as others, can benefit from? What what did it teach you from doing from writing this book? Well, uh, there are all sorts of things that I could refer to. I, I can pick out one or two. In particular, I think the the, the uh, distinction between unknowability and uncertainty is an important one, and that um, uh, unknowability we should respect, uh, whereas uncertainty we have to learn to tolerate. So that's a sort of yeah. fundamental difference. And I think that the the tolerance is an interesting. It's an interesting word. Why, why did why do you pick tolerance as being the word? Because I think uh, uncertainty produces a tension, if you like, yeah. or a challenge, yeah. which we have to learn to cope with. And I think uh, the important thing is to be able to cope with that without being um, pushed into one position or another uh, unreasonably. We need to sort of think it through and accept that it may take time, accept that we may not get it right uh, first time, and so on. And all of this, uh, I see as being part of the process of tolerating uncertainty. Well, you know, and, and also when I was, and I, I completely agree that it's it's something that we all want to be sure. I mean, there is such a attitude, at least in this country, and I'm sure it's similar over there, where this concept of confidence, and I, I and I remember um, the the famous saying from Hillary Clinton that I use all the time and she may or may not have said this but it was something like fake it till you make it which which is to me saying pretend as if you know what you're doing until you really do and and and, and we we tend to 
forget that a lot of what we do is pretending. We we act as if we know something when we really yeah. don't. Yeah. And and you know I I'm a I'm a lawyer by trade, and a lot of what I do is trying to convince a neutral party that I have a better story to tell. Right. And and you sort of pretend that well not I'm using maybe I shouldn't be using the word pretend, but but you but you spin it in such a way to make it appear as if that is the truth. Yeah. And yeah. we and we lose sight of the fact that it is really a story that we're that we're telling that we're not really that we may not be certain of of everything, but on the other hand, I also see the point that there is this yearning we all have for certainty. So there is that tension there, you know. There there is there is that tension that we always deal with. Yeah. And, and so I think, and, and and lastly, on that same point, I was as I was reading your book, it it struck me that we sort of have to move move the arrow um, or roll the ball as far far up the hill as we can, and 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 figure out really really what we're willing to accept as being uncertain. I mean, I I don't think that I mean as you point out. Um, with your with your um, attitude with with the subjugation of women, I mean, there's certain things where we come really close to wanting to be sure, <laughs> but but yeah. but but we have to figure out um, what what are the keystone points that some tolerance is necessary in order to be happy, or you know, yeah. so 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 um, in. In, in reaching the end here, John, I mean, I know I've asked you, I've had, I've asked you a lot of of your um, of your uh, lessons and and the main messages, but but if there if there's something you would tell the listener about, you know, in your in your career and in writing this book, uh, that that would be a takeaway. Um, what what would you, what would you tell the listener on, on what on on your um, and your study and your your research. Um, <laughs> I think I'm a little uncertain, uh, Philip, of having one particular uh, <laughs> message to give. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. That, yeah, that makes sense. That all fits together. That all fits together. Yeah. 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 yeah that. That's good. Yeah. Well, I. I think that at the at the end of the day, um, this is the kind of book that is that's that's very educational in many ways. Not only do you get sort of a nice summary of religion, consciousness studies, science, evolution, but you also get the benefit of somebody like Dr. John Bancroft sort of searching himself to find where where the uncertainties exist in these fields and how it's better for us to have a, a tolerance for them, for these uncertainties, in order to open our minds and take a fresher more healthy view uh, of the of of the mysteries of life and so and so uh john i take it your book is available on amazon is that right yeah yeah, yeah amazon amazon and um is i, I don't think a five-star review yeah all right <laughs> all, all right well in any event it's been great talking to you and again i want to recommend uh john's book tolerance of uncertainty it's 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 a very it's it's one of those you know unique books where you learn 
uh, in multiple levels as you go along. And so um, I really appreciate your time. And I, I, uh, I take it you have, uh, do you have any more uh, research projects scheduled? Are you writing a follow-up or are you going to take it easy for a while out there? Well, I, I, after completing the book, I wrote my memoirs, which oh. were not for publication, but which were circulating amongst my family and friends. Yeah. And then after that, I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> and I've now revisited uh, a research issue which about women, actually, which yeah. uh, I think will keep me busy for a while. Yeah, well, that, well, that, well, that, that, sound, that sounds great. And uh, so once again... Uh, John, thank thanks a lot. It was it was really good. It, it was you. really good having you on the show. We I, I learned a lot from from your book. I recommend it to the to the listeners. It's Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Join me next week when I'll have as my guest Allison Carmen, the author of the new book, The Gift of Maybe: Finding Hope and Possibility in Uncertain Times. And I really think you're going to like this show. So we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.